me tonight, and uh, we're going to continue the study we started last week on discipleship. And uh, look with me tonight at John chapter 15, and I'm going to read the first eight verses. You can remain seated tonight as I read from John chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, I want to stop right here because the emphasis of a lot of churches today, when we're talking here about fruit, is uh, they're talking about, they, they, they place the emphasis on the talk of, of soul winning efforts, of producing new Christians. And while certainly I, I would not deny that fruit bearing includes our efforts in witnessing and soul winning, that is not the context of the fruit being spoken of here. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. So let's read on. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Let's pray. Our Father, we do indeed praise you and thank you tonight for uh, your love for us. We thank you for your grace uh, which, by which you purchased our salvation. We ask tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would instruct us and help us Help us to be disciples of Christ. Teach us those things that we must understand, that we must know. And help each of us tonight to conduct our lives and to, to live our lives in such a way that we bring glory and honor unto the name of our Savior. Thank you for all these things. And now we ask you to instruct us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, talked about two things last week. I said last week that a, a disciple has commitment. And by commitment, we talked about putting God first in our lives and, and having uh, nothing before God, that God is, should be the center of everything we do um, and, and putting God first. And then we also last week said that a disciple must have conformity and not conformity to a set of standards or rules, but conformity to Jesus' teachings. And uh, a disciple must conform to the doctrine of his master and, and the teachings of Christ. And that is what we strive to do as disciples, to conform, not to this world, but to the image of Christ. So tonight I want to continue our study, uh, our examination into the discipleship, by saying number three tonight, that a disciple uh, must have conduct. A disciple must have conduct. And by conduct, we're talking about a fruitful life. Now we just read John chapter 15 verses 1 through 8, but let's look again beginning at verse 5. 
Here the Lord states, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. There's that word again, fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. For the purpose of our study tonight, we are referring to the word conduct uh, and its usage as a noun. Uh, Conduct is one of those words that can be used either as a verb or a noun, but tonight, uh, in the context of our teaching, we're using that word as a noun. And by definition, conduct as a noun means the manner of acting or controlling oneself, the way a person behaves, Toward another person. So, I'm studying, uh, I'm stating to us tonight that discipleship requires good conduct. Uh, there is something that most, th- this is something that most of us have been taught from our birth to adulthood is good conduct, right? Those of you who have children, you try to teach them to have good manners, you try to teach them to be well behaved. Uh, we, we all understand the the meaning of good conduct. We've, we've, been, we've been raised uh, to believe that. And it is by our conduct that men will be able to identify us as children of God rather than children of disobedience. When my father raised me, there were certain things I were not allowed to do. Other children could do these things. And uh, that was a little perplexing to me as a child. And I'm sure that Sometimes as Christians, we're a little perplexed as well to the fact that the world can do whatever it wants, but we, have, we, we can't do whatever we want. Uh, but we have to conduct ourselves, and my father uh, wanted me to live my life in such a way that I wouldn't dishonor him, that I wouldn't dishonor his fathers, that I wouldn't bring shame or reproach to our family name, right? Those are, those are things we were all taught. And, and, and it is this conduct that we're discussing tonight, whereby men will identify us as children of God rather than children of disobedience. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 16, we read, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Now, there's that word fruits again. And again, this word fruits is referring to life, to their conduct, to their behavior. Uh, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. What the Lord is telling us here is that by a man's conduct we can tell uh, what type of person he is. Uh, we can, if, if a person claims to be a Christian, the question is, does he have fruits of, Christ, of being a Christian? Does he, does he have a good conduct? Does his conduct agree with his claim to be a child of God? Or does his conduct um, prove him to be a child of, of disobedience? And this clearly expresses that our fruits are associated with our actions, our conduct, if you will. 
Paul further states this in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, where he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we know that in Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and I want you to notice, when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, you can turn to that later, he doesn't mention soul winning in there, does he? He talks about conduct, doesn't he? Uh, he talks about the way in which we behave our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is what he's talking about. Um, in other words, if I conduct my life or if I walk in submission to and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I will not live with poor conduct. I will not live my life according to the works of the flesh. I will live my life according to the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we, in fact, will conduct our life after the similitude of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12, we read that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful, there's that word again, fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. See these attributes? None of them, none of them apply to... to uh, going out and reaping a harvest, they all apply to the inward behavior of the individual, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Discipleship requires commitment. We discussed that last week. It requires conformity. We discussed that last week. And it requires conduct. Now, for a little bit tonight, let us consider uh, this conduct. And, and what things affect our conduct? Well, one thing that affects our conduct is attitude. Attitude affects our conduct. In Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, we read, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom an hundred and twenty princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was the first that the princes might give accounts unto, unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit, see that? An excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. An excellent spirit was found in Daniel. In other words, a good attitude. Daniel had a good attitude. Now think about this for a moment. Daniel is a captive of the Babylonian Empire. And you know, it's quite possible, I've said this before, that Daniel, it's quite possible he witnessed the murder of his own parents. When a kingdom conquered another kingdom, they, they slew all of the royalty and all, everyone of, of position and prominence. But often they would, they would take captive the young children of the royal families and would bring those children into their kingdom to train them in their languages so they could learn whatever knowledge they had. And these children were often well-disciplined children. They were, they were taught, uh, they, they had more education than the average child. So it is quite possible that Daniel uh, had to witness the, the slaying of his own parents. And here he is, a captive in the Babylonian Empire. He's taken away from his home. 
taken away from everything he loves, everyone he knows. How many of you think it would be easy to develop a good attitude if that happened to you, huh? I think I could, I think I'd probably develop a pretty bad attitude, but not Daniel. He had an excellent spirit. Despite all of this, Daniel maintained an excellent spirit or attitude. In fact, and and if you notice in the next two verses, verse four and five, um, it states here. Then the then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could not, or they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful. Neither was there any error or fault found in him. The, then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Man, that's something else. Daniel was faithful to the people who had taken him captive, to his oppressors. He, he, was, he was faithful, which means he, he, he must have been obedient, he must have been submissive. What a good attitude Daniel had. Well, how great would America be today if we had a generation of young people that had an attitude like Daniel's? How great would our nation be tonight if all of our senators and all of our congressmen were all men of integrity and character, men like Daniel with a good attitude? What would our country be like tonight? Oh, I, I tell you, it brings joy to my heart to think about it. What a testimony Daniel had. What an attitude Daniel had. You young people in this room, you would do well to study the life of Daniel and develop a good attitude like Daniel and like Joseph also. These were godly men who, who, who trusted their God and didn't hang their lip every time something happened to them. In Daniel chapter 5 and verse 12, we read, For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in this same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. And Daniel was such a great man. Could the same be said about you and I tonight? Daniel had such a good attitude that he found perfect peace and joy, even in the life of slavery. Despite his circumstances, Daniel maintained an attitude of love and cooperation with his captors. And this good attitude caused him to live with a good conduct. And all of this propelled him to the highest office in the land. How often do we fail and suffer need and lack because of a bad attitude? Oh yes, your attitude affects your behavior. How is your attitude today? Our conduct is affected by our attitude. But then secondly... Our conduct is affected by our awareness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I am amazed at how easy it is to forget about God. How many of you have ever experienced that? Huh? You get so busy, you get so caught up and wrapped up in things, you forget all about God. Jesus told us a story in the Scriptures about a young man who did just that same thing. 
We call him the prodigal son. Grew up in a good home, had a godly father, sure had all the advantages to success in life, but he had a bad attitude and he forgot about God. But in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 17, we read, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Notice the words, the phrase, came to himself. How many of you here have ever suddenly come to yourself? Huh? Yeah. You do, all of a sudden you stop and you find yourself and you say, wait a minute, what, what am I doing? What, what's going on? Why am I here? We come to ourselves, don't we? We come to our senses, uh, the, the older people might say. Awareness usually causes a person to change what they are doing. When we are, when we are unaware of our activities, uh, we continue in doing them. But when we become aware of what's happening, when we become, when we become knowledgeable, what happens? Well, we stop doing the wrong things, right? And we change our behavior. We change our attitude. It causes a change in behavior. And far too often, our Christian people are living in ignorance of God, His Word, and His principles. Let me say something. Far too many Christians, far too many of, of, of our own people, are too ignorant of the Word of God. We come to church on Wednesday night and we sit in the pews and we say, Pastor, feed us. Teach us. And then we go home and we close our Bibles. They sit in the corner. They sit under the TV guide. or, Of course, I don't think they even... Do they even sell TV guides anymore? I don't think they do. They sit over in the corner under the Nintendo paddles and things like that. Right? When, when, when Sunday comes, we, we scurry around, find our Bible, dust them off, come to church, sit there, and we say, Pastor, teach us. Then we go home and live our life, and Wednesday comes around, and we do the same thing again. You know what? The same Holy Spirit, listen to me carefully, the same Holy Spirit that teaches the pastor will teach you. Now, I'm not saying that you don't need to listen to the pastor, because the pastor is engifted with, with, with uh, abilities from God that you and I don't have. He's given special favors, if you will, to... to, to understand and perceive our needs. But the same Holy Spirit that teaches him wants to teach you. How often do you sit down with your Bible and you open it up and get out a dictionary and, and, and get out a, a, a commentary and, and say, Holy Spirit, teach me the Word of God. That's one of the, by the way, that's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to, to, to reveal to us, to teach to us all things that Jesus spoke. Too many people are living in ignorance of God, His Word, and His principles. They are sleepwalking through life. You ever sleepwalk? I did once when I was... I remember one time... Well, I don't remember it. They woke me up and they told me I'd been sleepwalking when I was a boy. That's a scary thought. You know that? Sleepwalking. But that's how most Christians live their Christian life. Just kind of sleeping, sleepwalking through life. Following the crowd. Remember the crowds we talked about Sunday morning? Following the crowd. 
You know, wherever they see a crowd, they think, oh, there's, there's something going on there. I've got to go see. We're sleepwalking through life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 34. Paul writes, awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame, Paul says. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, wake up and shame on you. You have no reason. Thank you, Thad. That's right, buddy. You have no reason to be ignorant of God's Word. You have within you the Holy Spirit of God, which is the oracle of God, the instructor, the teacher of the Word of God. Shame on you. That's what Paul is saying. They are living in ignorance of God primarily because they are not being taught the right doctrine. I tell you, there are so many people out there today that are just not being taught the correct things. They are being taught corrupt and compromised doctrine. They lack the courage and the concern to conduct their lives in righteousness because they have no real faith. And they have no real faith because they have no foundation in their life. And they have no foundation in their life because their spiritual teaching rests on faulty foundations. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Oh, we must have sound and correct doctrine. Without it, we have a faulty foundation, and without, without a solid foundation, our spiritual house will collapse and fall. Our conduct is adversely affected by our attitude. It is affected by our awareness. And then thirdly tonight, letter C, acquaintances. Our attitude is affected uh, or our conduct, I'm sorry, is affected by our acquaintances. You know, we spend a lot of time teaching our children, you be careful who you run around with, don't we? But do we be careful who we run around with? Hmm? We like to talk to our kids about hanging out with the right crowd. But who do we hang out with? Who do we read? What, what, what authors do we read? Uh, what television and movie viewing do we allow to penetrate our mind and affect us? Oh, you say, oh, now wait a minute here, buddy. You're starting to knock on my door. You're stepping on my toes. Well, then move your feet. Oh, we rail on our teenagers about the right crowd, and, and I preach down their throat about the right crowd, but you know what? Some of us need to get the, get, get the right crowd as well. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, apart from Jesus Christ, in Proverbs 27:17 states, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Now, there are two types of people in this world, leaders and followers. And each of us is influenced by our acquaintances. Now, this is a truth supported by Scripture. In Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20, we read, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. 
And, and again, I go back to this because a lot of people don't understand that when you pick up a book and start reading it, you're allowing that author to influence your thought patterns. You're allowing that author to influence your decision-making. Same with, same with movies. Listen, if movies don't make such a big impact on people, then why do they spend so much money making them? Of course they do. We're all creatures who desire to be led. And we seek leadership. And we better be careful what leadership we're seeking and what leadership we're accepting. Um, far too many wrongly think that they can change corrupt religions from within. But God warned us against this in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we read, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Listen, friends, you will not spend time with those that hate our doctrine and not be affected. In Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1, we read, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You will not fellowship with those that would desire to see our beliefs and preaching destroyed and remain free from corruption. You can't do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 tells us, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Now, if you think that you're able to do all these things and, and, and come through unscathed, then you are better than the Apostle Paul. For the Apostle Paul would never fellowship or yoke together with unbelievers. The closest thing he came to, to interacting with them was preaching the gospel to them. I would not sit and listen to two seconds of criticism against our pastor, against our deacons, against our church, against our members. We need, to, we need to clean this up. It's real simple. Just don't keep company with them. If you choose to ignore God's principles and associate with them, go ahead. But do not do it in the name of righteousness. Our conduct will be affected by our attitudes. It will be affected by our awareness. And our conduct will be affected by our acquaintances. So discipleship requires commitment uh, putting God first, it requires conformity to Jesus' teachings. It requires conduct, a fruitful life, a life of fruits of righteous works, righteous living. And then it requires, number four, compassion, a love for the brethren. Discipleship requires compassion. I'd like for you, we're at John chapter 15, just back up two chapters. Let's go to John chapter 13, if you would. John chapter 13, 
And let's look at verse number 34. Here we read, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now, before the Lord told his disciples to love one another, he first demonstrated this to them by his own actions. You see, the Lord filled the role of a servant to each of his disciples. Now, consider for a moment this evening the, the possible ways that we could express love. There are lots of ways to express love, right? Um, we can buy, as husbands, we can buy our wives flowers, bring them home to her, and that says, I love you. Or, um, according to the TV, every kiss begins with K, and you can go to K Jewelers and buy a $5,000 uh, diamond necklace, and that shows how much you love her, right? A diamond is forever, and so is the payment. Love can be expressed by words. It's not, you know, it's pretty easy to say, I love you, isn't it? Let's all try right now. Everybody say, I love you. That's so easy. Look at the person next to you and say, I love you. Sure. But do we mean it? Easy to say, but do we mean it? See, that's the question. Now, over the years, I have seen and heard Christians say, uh, to one another, I love you, brother, yet they bite and devour one another without any remorse or without any conscience. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, we read, For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as Thyself, But, he says in verse 15, if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Cannibal Christians. That's what they are. Christians are a bunch of cannibals. They eat each other up until only one is left. Jesus stated that men will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Now, the easy challenge here is to simply say, love each other and leave it at that. And this is the philosophy of the world, by the way, giving lip service to our love for one another. But I want to challenge you to not just say that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to challenge you to prove that you love your brother in Christ. Now, we, we're at John chapter 13. Look again, at, look at verse uh, 33. In verse 33, Jesus states, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. Jesus said, Where I go, you can't come. Now, this is referring to the road that Christ must travel. Uh, the road to the cross. So if Christ has commanded us to love him as he loved us, yet we cannot love as he has loved, 
then how do we fulfill his command to love one another as he has loved us? Well, we fulfill this by willingly serving one another in a spirit of true love. So I want to examine for a moment the heart of a willing servant, and then we'll be done. Let's turn together to Philippians chapter 2. Let's all turn there. Philippians chapter 2. It's right after Ephesians. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, if you'll read along silently with me. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 8. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also the thing, on the things of others. Let this mind be in you. All the things he's just talked about. Uh, being like-minded, having the same love, of one accord, not, not, being, uh, not, not working through strife, uh, being lowly of mind, esteeming others better than ourselves, looking on the, the needs of others and the things of others, not just on our own things. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's look at this mind for a moment. First of all, Jesus had, uh, uh, the, wine, uh, the mind of a willing servant is content to serve. Letter A on your study sheets, a willing servant is content to serve. Content to serve. Verse 6 in Philippians where we just read, stated, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus was content to do the work of the Father and be a servant unto his fellow man. Contentment is absolutely necessary if you or I will ever succeed in having the mind of Christ. It is absolutely necessary if we will ever succeed in truly loving one another, we must learn to be content to be a servant of, the, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Listen, I think you ought to live in the best house you can live in. I think you ought to drive the best automobile you can drive. I think you ought to wear the best clothes you can wear. I think you ought to do the best that you can for your family in the area of finances, but you had nothing with you when you came, and you're taking nothing with you when you go. And Paul said, just be content to have such things as God gives you. Learn to be, learn to be thankful and content and live your life in service to your fellow Christian and in service to God the Father. Jealousy and greed are at the root of every war ever fought. 
They are the bane of every failed marriage, of every broken heart, and of every bitter child. Discontentment is the ruin of any people. Conversely, contentment is at the core of everyone who succeeds. Paul states in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. A willing servant is content just to serve. They do not need to be recognized. They don't need to be made to stand in front of the church and get an applause. And Oh, man, men love that. They love that applause. Oh, yes, they do. If you don't believe it, go to one of these Bible conferences around the country and watch them scratch and claw at each other to be the one that gets to stand up on the platform and get the applause of the people. They don't need to be recognized. They're content to know that the Father sees all that they do. They don't need to be rewarded. Their reward is to know that they have pleased their Master. They are content to serve and bring glory to their Master. And to serve our Master and to prove our love, we must serve one another in love. So first, a willing servant is content to serve. Then, a willing servant is humble in his service. He's humble. Back to our scriptures. In verse 8, we read, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, humbled himself before men. Christ, though he was God, accepted his role as a man and accepted the task given him by the Father. He accepted that he must lay aside his deity and must suffer the humiliation and the agony of the cross. And this he willingly accepted, as the Bible states, with joy. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, we see, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. A willing servant is one that accepts his responsibilities as a servant, and places the desires of his master above his own desires. We go through our Christian life telling God what we want. And more than that, we go through life telling him what we want him to do. And if he doesn't do what we want him to do, then he's just not a good God. And we get mad and we get angry and we go sit in the corner and pout like a five-year-old does when he can't have the toy he wanted. And I know every mama in this room can relate to that. And in this matter of love for one another, it is the will of our Father that we put each other ahead of ourself. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I cannot go where Christ has gone to the cross. I cannot go. But I can love you as he taught me to love you. I can be willing to give up my desires, my hopes, my wishes, in order that I might fulfill the will of my master, my father, my God. 
A willing servant is content to serve. A willing servant is humble in his service. And then thirdly and lastly, a willing servant is obedient to his master. Back to verse 8 again in Philippians chapter 2. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus, by going to the cross, gave us the greatest example of love anyone will ever see. He endured the unendurable. He suffered the unsufferable. He did the unthinkable. And he did not do this, by the way, for you and me. No flesh is worthy of Jesus' suffering. No flesh. Jesus didn't die on the cross for you, and he didn't die on the cross for me. Why did he die on the cross? He did all of this for the glory of God. He did all of this in obedience to his Father. I have heard it said, it was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross, it was his love for me. Sorry. See, that's that corrupt doctrine I was talking about. That's that doctrine that puts man as the center of everything that God lives, that, that is God. No. The correct statement is, it was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love for the Father that held him there. My salvation, my redemption, was not the first thing on his mind. The will of the Father, this is what compelled him. And this is what drove him to the cross to die. Not for you, not for me, for the Father. And until we get that right, we'll never fully understand how to love one another. Now, don't get me wrong. Christ loves me with an undying love. But it is, is, it, but it is his love for the Father that compelled his obedience to the will of God. And if I try to live a life of love for the brethren based solely upon my feelings for you, it will fail. Why? Because my feelings for you will change. I guarantee it. And your feelings for me will change. So if we're loving each other based upon our feelings, we're not going to love each other very much. But, if I love you because I love the Father... And the Father's will for me is to love you. And I want to do the Father's will. Therefore, I'll love you, not because of you, but because of the Father. Then I will succeed in loving you. It is my love for the Father that compels me to love you today. It is my love for the Father that causes me to obey God and love you as I should. Love you as I must. Even when I don't want to. Even when I don't feel like it. I love you. And I am willing to serve you. Because my love for the Father compels me to obey Him. And to do what He demands of me. And not what I feel like doing. Jesus' love for the Father brought Him to the cross. He died for the glory of God. He died for his love and his obedience to the Father. And as a sideline effect, you and I got saved. Don't place yourself in the center. Don't, 
don't make yourself don't don't make yourself sinful, worthless flesh so important that God and Jesus moaned and groaned in heaven and didn't sleep right until they were able to redeem us. That's not what it's all about. It's not about me. It's all about God. It's all about the glory of the Father. It's all about obedience to His holy will. And until we get that right, we won't get anything else right. You are God's favor today. You are His elect. He loved you with an undying love, and He went to the cross to redeem you. But it was for His own glory and according to His own purpose and His own will. The willing servant is content, content just to serve. The willing servant is humble. He accepts the desires of his master. The willing servant is obedient. He obeys his master regardless of the cost. And all of this is how and why I can obey the Lord and love my brethren. And by this, the world will know that we are Christ's disciples. A disciple of Christ is committed. He puts God first in his life. A, A disciple of Christ is conformed to the teachings and the principles of Christ. A disciple of God has good conduct. Living a righteous, fruitful life, a disciple of Christ is compassionate, loving his brethren and serving them in the love of Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time together tonight. Father, we desire to do your will. We desire to obey you and we desire to glorify your name. This is what brought Jesus to the cross. This is what produced the sacrifice necessary for the redemption of the elect. But all of this, Lord, was done for your glory and to glorify you and you alone, not to glorify me, not, not for any, anything for me, but simply for your glory. Thank you for these truths that we've heard tonight. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to receive these things and that we would use them to serve the Lord, that we would grow in grace, and we ask you to, uh, to bless all that was done tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.